In the art world, one of the things that distinguishes you from being an amateur or a professional is can you actually pronounce all the artists' names going back over hundreds of years? And probably Dutch, Flemish artists have got the most complicated names, i.e. what it looks like their name is pronounced as and what it actually is pronounced as is very different. I think it's a good point. Yeah. Welcome back to the Forster's More Than Law podcast. You just heard the voice of Charles Cochrane of Cochrane Adams Fine Art Agents talking about just one of the many challenges of working in the art world. My name is Robert Lyndon Laird Craig and I work in the private client team at Forster's. For this episode, Charles joined me and my colleague and buddy, Joe Thompson, in a very grand but somewhat echoey room to talk about the art market, particularly for collectors. There are, of course, lots of ways people come to the art market. For those involved in a big way, it might be by way of an inheritance or it could be someone starting a collection from scratch. It might be for the love of it, to preserve it or as an investment, perhaps a combination of all three. The art market is still one driven by the fundamental economic principles that apply to any marketplace. Nonetheless, there are still a lot of very subjective factors that determine the successes and the failures. While a trustee might feel safe and comfortable holding on to an old master as part of a wide and diverse asset portfolio, there are broader and wilder parts of the market that are not always for the risk averse. I am a bit of an art troglodyte, albeit an enthusiast, who sees the art market as a bit of a mystery. So in this episode, I got one step closer to some clarity on the subject in my discussion with Charles and Joe. Charles has an academic and professional background that includes law and fine art. He brings his extensive expertise to advising and acting as agent for owners and collectors, spanning individuals to trustees, family offices to other professional advisors. Joe is a private client lawyer at Forster's and part of the firm's art and cultural property group. She advises artists, galleries, auction houses, owners and collectors. I started by asking Charles to tell me how, if I was to walk into his office the day after a vast lottery win, he would suggest I start collecting. Well, I mean, <clears throat> that's obviously, uh, it's a wonderful situation to be in. I, th I think particularly with a novice buyer, which obviously you've described yourself as, I, I would say an easy picture is to have a sort of an inverted pyramid of which the top being a very broad situation to start with is to try and um, objectify your understanding of art. And I say that because a lot of people when they start buying will justify to themselves that it's just what I like. And so therefore, I don't need to explain it to myself or to anybody else. It's, and because it is subjective, no one can tell me that I'm wrong in this case. And it's not really about being right or wrong. It's more to do with understanding all the different type of artists that are out there over the last hundreds of years, or it may not even be art. It may be that you're interested in decorative things. So there's one aspect there that you need to know more before you actually start buying, because you may find there's something else you really like but didn't know about. But also that artists are seen in reference to other artists and have come out of previous artists. And you will find that there are certain sweet spots in that particular artist's career that are really important. And you need to, I think, if you're going to become a collector, it's important to try and recognise that. And so that, that's the sort of objective nature of which I'm talking about. And I think it's easier when you're buying and becoming a collector to form a collection. If people come around and see your art, that they are also seeing someone who knows about what they're interested in. I think that's an attractive thing to do. Um, so that's the first thing I would say is not do what lots of people do, which is simply be subjective and then start buying. So learn about the art world. And so you need to be a little bit academic about it. You have to... I, I, yeah, how I, does that process work? So how, how, how you know, you know, you, all you know is that you are interested in collecting art. What do you do? You sort of go to galleries and write down the names of the pieces that you like? Um, Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, I mean, the great thing about the, the, the screen, if that's one way of putting it, is that you can see a lot of, a lot of art very, very quickly without actually having to travel anywhere. Um, I think, it, in your question, I think one assumes that they've got some interest in art rather than it's just simply, I want to buy art. So I think that's perhaps even... I've jumped straight in by assuming this isn't an investment decision. This is, a, this is actually a connecting decision. And that's actually something to think about right at the outset. But assuming you're interested in what you're looking at, this buyer will have, probably have some idea. So you can just at least be more interested in the artist that you already know about. And, and so that's a passion. If you see it as academic, it sort of feels negative. That it feels like it's something you've got to read up on. But hopefully you've already, you're already passionate about that particular type of art, those particular type of artists. Um, then, as you said, Joe, how would you, how would you learn more? And I think, I think going to galleries is a, is a great way um, of seeing that particular artist. And galleries are very good at then, particularly public galleries, are then cross-referencing you to other artists. They will have referred. Um, and so you need to sort of learn where they've come from. And in that process, you will then go backwards into what... And that, of course, may open up or may shut down what you're interested in. And that in itself is helpful, I think. Is that something you ever do when people come and speak to you? Yeah. Um, if I came into your office, could I say, listen, you've told me now um, that I need to be a bit more academic about it. Can you take me on a tour based on the fact that I love Scream? Very much. Yeah, I, I think what one would do is, um, assuming they've got some interest in art, would then be to sit down and say, stop, let's look at... Uh, and I have a, a sort of a, a group of artists which sort of flesh out are, are you interested in old art? Is it, is it academic art? Is it abstract art? Is it landscapes? Is it portraits? Is it French? Is it English? Are you particularly interested in the country that you come from or, or the heritage that you have? Quite often, people will be interested in their own heritage and artists that are part of their own heritage. Um, or they may not be. But you, there's a, I have a, um, a series of, of works which <laughs> I have in pictorial form which are quite good at working out from someone who really is new to art, but has decided, I've got art, I've got, sorry, I've got um, a house, I've got money, I've got a yacht, I've now, I, I've got blank walls now, what, are, what do I put on? Um, I love on. that you've managed to narrow it down into well. these categories. No, because, because there has to be a starting point, you doesn't there? You have to start so, somewhere. So that's really helpful, and obviously yeah. you've been in the industry for a long time. That has reflects the fact that your background was as a lawyer. It's very organised and ordered. Uh, I was a lawyer. That's quite right. Um, and uh, I, but I also it's went really to art school. Then I <laughs> and I, I did the unusual route of going to law and then going to art. Um, so I went to art school afterwards. Um, and so I hope I was organised at art school. I, I think actually being organised as an artist is, if you know artists, it's not what they're necessarily good at. But then I'm not an artist anymore. I'm now helping people buy. And, and to sell and to understand what they're doing. And so, in, so I think you, you might find out that the process of looking at the art that I've sort of got on my, on my pictorial guide um, and then looking at galleries, um, public galleries, uh, galleries that actually represent artists if you're interested in contemporary art or you know, established art. Um, and then I would then start walking around. So my job to begin with, with someone like that, is if I can, is not to make them feel like they are being educated because they tend to be successful people and they don't want to feel like they're being told what to do. But you're trying to stop for a period of time someone continuing to purchase until I, until I sort of feel and they feel that they know more about what it is that they like in the sense that they could explain it to someone. And when you can do that, I think you sort of know an awful lot more about what you're doing. Yeah, and I think it enhances your personal enjoyment too because art is so much about responding to the canon of works that came before and 
it can enrich your understanding and your therefore your enjoyment. Or going sideways, and you suddenly find, as I had a client who was very interested in uh, modern British, uh, they were actually an American client and didn't know much about American modernism and came across Georgia O'Keeffe almost by chance. And sometimes it's not that they haven't got the interest or the passion, they haven't got the time. And what they want is someone to cut out the wasted years of stumbling around in a process that is guided. Mm. Um, and that, I think, is really helpful because you hear of people who have bought art, perhaps unwisely, and you can spend a lot of money buying what you didn't really necessarily like that much. I mean, because typically I imagine that um, it's not quite so binary as you're either doing it entirely for um, subjective um, love of the thing or purely as an investment without any care about what you're, you're buying. So there's always going to be um, a blend of the two, but with a different emphasis. But it's, it's not like going to see an investment fund manager um, to discuss your stocks and shares. I, I think that's very right. And that comes on to the second part of the, of the pyramid, which I threw in as a visual metaphor, which I've only done the, the broad bit. I think once you sort of know what it is that you're, you're interested in and why, um, I think it's useful to know about how the art market works. You want, in, if you can, to get the price that you're paying as close as possible to the value. And, and that's a very complicated relationship. And so that becomes another step for me to help someone with is to go through how does the art market work? Where are the complicated bits? How do you try to avoid that? And then and you really narrow down to the bottom part of this inverted pyramid. Um, you then form a shortlist of actual works that you actually now are thinking of buying and you've done all the due diligence, uh, including value and price. And then you say, right, now it's time to buy something. But I guess once you get to that, this is the bottom of the triangle, you're then in a really good place because then you can act quickly when things come on the market um, because you're able to assess much more efficiently. Is that a good buy? Is that something I want in my collection? I think, I think so, because quite often in a particular selling period, and it used to be um, summer and Christmas, summer and winter used to be the two bit. Now it's much more spread out through the auction period. And so every time there's an auction sale, all the private market, the dealers and the galleries are also going to be very aware of, you know, this is a hot moment of the year. And you will suddenly find that decisions have to be made quite quickly. Um, and if you can cut out the aesthetic ones and you're ready, then that's a good thing. Yeah. Yes, yes you're right. Because if you have a situation where you have the beneficiaries of the trust wanting to or interested in buying some artwork and wanting trustee funding for that, for the trustees to make up their minds to decide to fund it, they've got to make sure that that's, they've done their homework on whether or not that's a good investment. And that can take time and also be quite a sort of nervous decision for trustees who might not have any interest or involvement in the art world. And it's very difficult for trustees, I think, because they're having to make art decisions uh, and they're trying to make investment decisions about turning cash into art when it's quite hard, going back to the top of this inverted funnel, to try and quantify interest. And when it's not even your interest, it's interest of someone else within the trust, then it's even harder. It's not even your subjective interest in something. If you can get your, the buying process into a, a good, it's a good housekeeping, I guess, yeah. that you can try, the trustees can understand as much as they can do the logic to why you're buying something, then that's a good thing as well. So we, we've talked before about... Um the perils of going in um, uninformed about what you're doing, because I think you've come across examples, um, anecdotally, haven't you, where, where people have gone off and thought, well, I'm going to go and start this, and, and they start building collections, and they forget who's actually um, the right person to go to in a particular context. Yes. I mean, <clears throat> this is the sort of second part of the pyramid, is that the art market itself, I mean, um, auction houses act, strictly speaking, as sellers 
agents for the sellers. And of course, if you're buying through an auction house and you're talking to the auction house, that, that's quite complicated because you're, as a buyer, you're talking to a seller. Um, and if you go to a dealer where the dealer is selling stock, um, something they've actually bought and they actually own that as principal, not as agent, then again, if you're a buyer, you're asking a seller for advice. And that's, again, tricky. And gallerists, their job, their central job is to take an artist from ground zero, from outside, from art school, and build them up, promote them. And again, if you're a buyer, um, <laughs> you know, you're asking a gallery who's selling you something. One thing you want to do, I think, is to find out exactly who it is that you're talking to and what their commercial interests are in a particular case, um, which I think is, <laughs> it's been internationally litigated over. Well, I think, I think the case is called Bouvier and Rivalevlev. And the reason I refer to that um, is that Rivalevlev is a very wealthy art collector who bought art through Bouvier. And I, I don't think they ever quite understood their relationship whether Bouvier was acting as a dealer and could sell on as principal for whatever he could sell for, or whether he was acting on an agency basis and could only charge a commission. If there's a, a lesson to be learned from my understanding of that case, and goodness, I'm not a lawyer, but is, is to understand who it is if you have an advisor, what, how they're acting for you. Because one of the problems you have, and this is actually quite a serious point, is that if you were buying a house or you were buying... Yeah, well, let's say you were buying a house, you would go to the land registry or you'd find a solicitor, you'd have a surveyor. I mean, there's a whole host of people and there's a, a very tight, legally organised process in how you buy uh, a house. Um, in the art world, you are there are none of those things. Uh, and so it's really hard and you immediately feel, just like, am I ever going to get invited to Larry Kogosian's private view? If you get invited, you are immediately, you feel... I can't question this process. I mean, I'm just lucky to be here. Yeah. And so this feeling of making a mistake, making a social faux pas, making a, 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 an aesthetic faux pas by not understanding the art world, or mispronouncing someone, all of this makes you feel very small, in, 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 and you're trespassing in somebody's very complicated world. And so you're immediately thinking, I mustn't ask questions. This is, this is, yeah. It'll just make me look yeah. like an idiot. And, and, and that is a... It, it, sometimes I, I look at the, the Rivalevlev Bouvier case and think, how could they not have asked these basic questions? He would have done this in business. He's mm. extremely successful um, and, and yet didn't in this circumstances. And I wonder whether you feel this pressure of, I mustn't ask questions in the art world. Which is actually where it's really good to have your lawyer, you know, plug in our services here, but come in and say, sorry, guys, we've got to formalise all of this. What's everyone's scope? How's everyone acting? What's everyone doing? And then, and you're boring and you can see people's eyes watering as you come near the thought of you having to sort it all out. But at least then there's that person there who makes life easier for everyone. I think that the small amount of money that you would need to spend to have a, a contract that says you are an agent, you are not a dealer, you will charge X percent, you will do this. You will, you will tell me how much I bought this work of art for yeah. and you will describe it and, or, and you've checked it out and, we, and all, all of that. That small amount of money is nothing compared to buying something for right, right. 40 million that was worth, that was bought by the person who it to you for 15 yeah. or 20 or so. I mean, I suppose that, yeah, a lot of people who, who are going into the art market, if they've acquired art, are going to feel self-conscious it, it's it's a different thing it, this is a demonstration of um perhaps having succeeded and therefore you don't want to look ignorant you've got to you feel like you've got to know it already because if you don't then you're a fraud and, and i think this is the syndrome. problem i think this is it you you and, and if you become very successful in something you don't want to feel like or or let anyone know that you don't know that much about something else so mm -hmm. the pressure's on you and i think 
the sales process in art, the salesmanship, is really strong because you're always relying on somebody else within the art world to tell you. And the trouble is those that information is quite often loaded with conflicts. Um, yeah. So, and quite often what you'll end up doing, in very in fact very often what happens is a glass of champagne arrives and a friendship matures quite quickly and you end up buying because of a friendship, not because you actually like the art that that particular gallery owner or dealer is is selling you or has, but because you just happen to have got to know them on a personal basis. Mm. And so that is something to cut. If you can try not to do that, to try to... It's not that you shouldn't go to that person, but not go there until you've looked at the art world generally. What do you actually like? And why would you go to that dealer and not to someone else to buy the same object or something similar? The, the, the sales and glass of champagne and friendship side to someone who doesn't want to admit to themselves they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. The amount of art that is sold like that is, is huge, mm. I think. I mean, relationships and all kind of investment decisions yeah. um, are going to be important, but perhaps it's just about making sure that you have lots of relationships and you know, there's a, um, that you're not just going to one gallery, having one relationship with one dealer um, and um, buying everything through that person. I think that, I yeah. certainly. Otherwise you're in a sort of version of what your friend told you down the pub. But a more glamorous yeah. version. And more gla- well, and then you could go to m- many pubs if you want to take this analogy about having a, a broader base of who you go to see. The trouble is, it's a bit like going to a doctor or three or four doctors and getting different diagnoses. You've then got to try and work out, well, which one do I believe mm-hmm. when you're not a doctor? And, and, and so my job in, that, in the scenario of where you're, particularly here, where you're a novice yeah. buyer, is, is to guide you through this process. Uh, and say, I'm actually on your side because I, I'm not, I haven't got any stock. I'm not an auction house. I'm not trying to sell you anything. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to do is, is to help you buy from a variety of places the things that you actually want to buy and that you know why you're buying it and, and for how much. But then, you know, the helpful exercise I'm going to get three opinions is mm-hmm. to understand that one opinion, there is no one certain opinion that is correct. Yes, it's not gospel. Yeah. But the person, so, some, so going back to the doctor, I think if you had three diagnosis and you then need to know which one was right my job is to say I understand all of those three it's not about right or wrong um, it's do you actually want to buy that art uh, is that what you're actually interested interested in and, and if you if you are interested in that art, actually there's someone else that's selling uh, the same sort of art like for instance there's a Bond Street gallery who I will not name who tends to corner the market in prints works on paper of well-known artists and someone came to see me about about buying those prints and I said well you could go to the actual gallery owner who actually represents the artist and buy the same work the same print because it's a print you know there's, there are multiples it's a multiple um, and uh, and for a fraction of what you're paying and they ended up saying no actually I really want to buy through this gallery because I think there was a degree of I want to be able to say that that's where I buy my art. I mean, I don't know what it was that drove this person. So, But then again, that, that's where you've got this really interesting spectrum of, of yeah. why people invest and how yeah. people invest. You've got the very conservative end where you're dealing with old masters where you know what the values are and you've got trustees who are being very cautious and yeah. risk-averse. And the other end of, mm. of, of um, people investing for all sorts of very emotionally driven reasons, whether that's vanity, whether that's... Um, uh, trying to create a false impression or whether it's because you just love it and um, you don't care about the price, whatever it is, uh, the, the spectrum is so enormous. And you can see perhaps why these this whole host of young artists who have suddenly 
um, sold for lots of money at auction houses, perhaps they're a refreshing change to new collectors who think, actually, I want to get involved in the art world, but this is a way for me to get involved and not be caught up in what some see as the snobbery of the art market and I'm not tangled in all this sort of this artist and their canon and things and they're just buying new and fresh and exciting work. The danger with all of that is with a more cynical view of the art world is that that could all be another fantastic sales process and that's where you're constantly from my perspective if I'm representing a buyer trying to distinguish between the sales process and the patter and whether this narrative is actually real in terms of, is there real value? And this is the thing between price and value. This constant, is there real value there or not in, in this? Not just do you like it, but is there value there? Uh, and my job, going right back to the top of that inverted um, pyramid, is this, how do you objectify? How do you try to understand what it is that's going on here? Because this is what we're talking about here, the diverse group of artists. This is really new. Um, and we haven't talked about NFTs, but that NFTs didn't really exist in the art world until COVID. And, and are largely, no, I wouldn't say largely, but have certainly fallen away as a hot topic. Um, and we're now 20, well, we are 2023, but only just. So look at that. And you could have jumped in to that market if you'd wanted to. Um, yeah. Very, it's, 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 so, yeah, the job is, it's it, it, not to dampen your client's ardour and interest, but to try constantly to uh, educate that. Because... People who are in the art world, dealers, galleries, auction houses, they are making money out of what they do and they do understand. I.e. it is possible to understand this you know, art within a commercial context. So in terms of how you get to the actual value of art, you said it's a very complicated and, and tricky um, thing to understand. What are the drivers and what's different about how it might have been done in the past to now? Because presumably technology and shifts in auction patterns will have changed how the market runs and what the drivers are and how artists are promoted, um, how galleries operate, that sort of thing. Yeah, so that's a very complicated and interesting question. Um, so I think if you look at established artists, and I mean usually artists who have been dead for some period and there are no galleries to promote them because the artist is dead, um, the theory there is that that artist's work stands on its own two feet and it is um, there is a secondary market. And that's broadly what auction used to deal only with was secondary art. And this is obviously going back a few years. Um, if you're just looking at those sorts of artists, um, one can sort of understand because um, one understands the market for Caravaggio or, or, or for Turner, for instance. Those, mar those artists will come and go. And, and for instance, Cranach, you could buy as a German artist after the Second World War for next to nothing because of the war, not because of the artist. And so there will be fashions and there will be things that affect um, artists that have got really nothing to do with the art. They're to do with the world and circumstances around them. Um, but broadly speaking, one can know where the great works are. A lot of the great works of established artists, dead artists, are in museums. There will be other works that are in private hands. Those privately held artworks that are of museum quality are therefore very, very important. So it's easier to understand and quantify which art is important and which work of art is not so important in a particular artist's production. When you've got a gallery which is promoting a living artist, um, one of their jobs is to tie value and price to together and keep them going in a straightforward and smooth path what you don't want is great spikes and then collapses because 
I mean, a painting is worth, I mean, it's just an oil canvas, a stretcher and a frame. There's not much to it. So the, the, the interest in it is aesthetic. And if that aesthetic interest collapses, that's, that's, that's not good. And that's what a gallery wants to do, is to get their young artists into museums. And that starts a process of, of sort of cultural recognition. One of the difficulties, and you've asked about technology, is that through the COVID pandemic, um, the move went to online, um, only auction sales, and that you couldn't have viewing. And auction houses were looking for new things to do. And they embraced, uh, uh, I suppose, what would one call a, a new diverse group of artists who yeah. are really new and are only just starting out with galleries. And so you now have very young artists with very little track record who are being validated by going straight into either a day or even an evening sale. Like the, you know, the contemporary evening sale is the most prestigious Southern Miss mm. Christie's and Phillips sale that they do. And they're going straight there. And so that is a validation to a new buyer to purchase these works. Um, and that is where it's very difficult for someone like me or for a buyer to understand whether they should or should not buy this art. And the drivers there, well, again, when we talked about understanding art and the art market, I would say sit down and really try to understand what is going on here. If that artist is already in a museum, that helps enormously because they have got cultural validation. If they're not, it's, that's a very speculative thing to do. And you hope that you're on the beginning of a, an upward curve and not at the top of it. I think if you're completely on the outside and you're thinking, should I buy this? You can look at artists and see, are they dealing with the sorts of issues that the main Western museums are interested in? And, and, and that, you, you can get a reasonable idea. You can look at the gallery that represents the artists and look at how well known they are. What sort of other artists have they got? What sort of issues do they gen generally tend to be dealing with? It's interesting listening to this as somebody who doesn't really know the, the market well, that it's, it's an area which, in, for some people, um, it, it's the Wild West. It's, it's, um, because it's so subjective in terms of um, enthusiasm. And the approach that you're describing is, is very conservative. I mean, much more conservative. If you went to see a, a, an investment fund manager, they might be saying, well, you could you know, branch out a little bit over here and over here. But you're actually describing quite a conventional and, and sort of sensible process going into, into the market. I think what's interesting with interest rates going up and with us coming out of the COVID lockdowns, um, I think a degree of the previous, more established art world is coming back. And I think people are looking at some of the very new artists, sort of now or ultra contemporary, and are wondering how good are some of these artists really? How much of this is a bit of a gimmick? How much are they really going... How are these, how are these artists going to fare over the period? And I think the the... The summer, or uh, let's say six months ago, some artists, and I'm perhaps not going to name them, have, who were selling actually for multi-millions are now struggling to sell even at their low estimate at auction. And that, that is where you get a gallery who's thinking, I can't control the estimates that the auction house puts on. And if they push it too hard and people don't bid, then that fails and it's publicly or it does badly and that will affect the gallery sales. And then suddenly that artist goes from a stellar trajectory to one that's actually really quite difficult. And that artist suddenly goes from, you know, the heights, and I was thinking of Icarus, as I, and suddenly it collapses into the, into the sea. Because, and that's terrible for the artist. And that's the danger here, is the artist is, it has lucked out and has suddenly collapsed. And, and, and you're caught up in a commercial process that, well, I hope you might recover from, but it's going to be tough. And it's tough if you bought that work. And when it's the other way around, so if a gallery 
sells um, something, sells a piece that somebody then goes and gets the benefit of some subsequent hype and sells for a massive profit, yeah. or if it's the gallery of the artist, how, how do they protect their own interests in the first place? Or is there a way for them to do well, it? Again, that's another interesting question. Um, it, if it keeps on going, the artist, the, the gallery has got hopefully an artist who is um, hugely bankable. This is all going the right way, at least. The problem is that the artist and the gallery are not making the upside. They're doing all the hard work to promote, but they're not getting that profit that has just been made through the auction process. Um, normally, galleries would be very careful about who they sell to. So just to get onto the buying list to, to a good gallery is quite something. Um, and they try to control, and what they want is for people not to sell too quickly. So, so how do you go about getting on a buying list? <laughs> Asking for friends. Well, there, well, there, this, well, this is it. This is, I mean, I mean, to get invo invited to some of the really big, you know, Hauser and Worth, Gagosian, to get invited to those private views is is a process that takes a long time to be to be accepted as someone who really is a collector, not not a speculator, someone who's got the money to be able to buy, uh, and is to be taken seriously. So you will have to get, you'll have to get to know these people. And of course, how do you? It's like getting into a club. How do you get into a club without knowing anyone? You can't get into a club to get invited, and so you go around in a circle. But you come and um, talk to an agent who's going to hold your hand. You yeah. get you, you come to well. us. <laughs> you, 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 that is one thing for, for, for a, a living artist that uh, one of the things I can do is to give access. So, so assuming you've got invited, um, you, you, one of the things that the galleries are trying to do um, is where they can't stop themselves selling, i.e. the gallery isn't quite big enough or they've got greater overheads than they can perhaps fund and they're selling perhaps not as conservatively as, or as carefully as they um, should do. I've heard of, art, uh, of galleries offering um, or trying to sell on a, a no-sale contract, i.e. for a period of time. You cannot sell. And of course, I would have thought that would reduce <laughs> the price. But, yeah. you know, and that's difficult to enforce, I think. Um, and then I've heard of overage agreements have been talked about where um, the buyer, if they put in that work into auction, uh, within a period of time, will hand over part of the profits that they make when when I've they go to. Have you seen one of them? I haven't seen. I've one never of them. seen. I've, all I've heard is that that's what is being introduced because it's called flipping. In in in, in that's the phrase, um, and it's not particular to the art world. But um, that, that sounds like a very investment heavy, doesn't it? it? It sounds like a very much an investment phrase. Yeah. yeah. But this is a speculative process. This is yeah. this is very different from the rest of the art world because. The rest of the art world, people pretty much know the value. This is an important work by Turner. This is not so. This is a watercolor. This is faded. This has got title problems. You can you can quantify that market much more easily. Where you have an artist who was selling for twenty thousand dollars, suddenly a hundred thousand dollars, suddenly half a million dollars in the space of a year, that's attracting speculative money, um, and that's where this flipping um, phrase has, has come in. Um, and and where, when I say interest rates, I wonder how much that will affect. I mean, inflation might drive you to buying investment quality assets, but maybe not speculative. I mean, in, in, in an investment portfolio, for example, it's quite fun to have a few wild cards mm. in there. You know, mm. to put, put a bit of money on yes. a bit of a sort of mad yeah. um, stock. What do you advise your clients who are wanting to make more speculative investments? I think in terms of how much money, first of all, you should put into art, I think the first thing one says to, should say to any client is you have to feel rich enough that you don't need this money. You don't, it's not going to produce any 
um, income because this is not this is not the core asset of your pension. Fund. This this can't yeah. be something yeah. that you you can't need this money. So you're looking at yeah, capital and then, growth. And God forbid that you have to take it out of the country, or you want to take it out of the country. And Any of those things. You can sell it later. Very, I think you have to look at buying art on a long-term basis, I think. And you have to say that I know that I will not need that money on a long-term basis. And that is sort of established art. I then think that you, that will inform how you then look at speculative art. And you have to look at how wealthy you are and how much I really, not only can I not live, do, do I not need at any, in any future sort of short-term sense, but that actually I don't mind if I lose completely. Having said all of that, I think you can get advice. You can, your speculative buying can be more logical, more thought through. You can feel more comfortable about what you're doing. Alongside that, you presumably also have just basic supply and demand um, principles. I mean, anecdotally, I know of a, a probate um, where the, the, the lady that died had, say, 80% of the worldwide collection of lampshades. And in order to distribute that, because it wasn't going anywhere in particular, it was just going to be sold, it had to be done on a drip feed basis because launching the whole thing onto to the market for lampshades um, uh, was going to obviously devalue each of them. Um, and and that's, that's actually a very important consideration when we do probates for living artists. Well, when, yeah. when they are no longer living. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> formerly living artists. Formerly living artists. Um, because there is a temptation when the artist dies, you know, their children sort of want to wind up the estate, want to get the funds, um, sort of move on with their lives, which I completely understand from an emotional perspective. But then suddenly what you can do is just flood the market with the works of the deceased artist. And yeah. then those, chil- those ben- children are shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. So, so as in life, um, it's a long game. Mm, exactly. I think that what you've just described is, is a, a classic problem for, for an artist um, and then for the, the artist's family from transferring from what would be normally known as the primary market where the artist is living and being promoted by a gallery to when the artist then dies. If it's well managed and well organised, um, what one wants is to have someone who will vet the artist's estate so that people who buy and sell art in the secondary market later are i.e. after the artist's death one can be sure that that art that art is actually by that artist and that guarantees the market and you don't sell and end up selling all the important pieces straight away and have and 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 even worse than that flood the market and and destroy the market Um, so you will end up working with a gallery or or potentially not sometimes depending on who the artist is yeah, it tends, it tends to happen um, generally where we work for artist clients that we would then divide their estates so you have then yeah. all of their assets other than their art assets mm-hmm. and then you have their art assets and usually those two pots are managed by different people. So um, sometimes the artist's children are very involved yeah. in their work so they might help with, the, with both pots in the estate. Um, but generally it tends we tend to sort of get an informal gallery mm-hmm. help too because obviously the gallery just has had that working relationship with the artist for so many years. Well, I think a gallery is very helpful. Where a gallery is interested in the long-term process, i.e. transferring a primary market to a secondary market, because at some point, therefore, the gallery isn't needed anymore. Some galleries will want to have a sort of star sale and then just leave, and that's what you probably want to avoid, I think. So um, if you can get a gallery that will work with you over the long term and hand over slowly, that's great. The... Looking after the artist's estate and the, guarantee, the guaranteeing, i.e. the attribution side of this and creating a catalogue resume. Uh, if you can do some of that before the artist dies, that's great. But usually that falls to a family member. 
Do you find that people appoint separate executors or trustees for their own works? If the people that they would appoint as executors for the rest of their estate are not involved in their artwork and don't know their artwork that well, then yes, they would usually be separate trustees or executors of their art estate, let's call it. And we encourage our artist clients to leave and create detailed records um, and with mixed results. I mean, the po- I mean, are artists easy clients? <laughs> Do they, they fill in your Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> Do you know what? Some are very techy and have brilliant software programs. But the problem is, is they, you know, it's that they should be creating and that's a yeah. much better use of their time. Um, so the more, I mean, there's great softwares now which make the process of creating an inventory much easier. Mm. Leaving a shopping list of people that their executives might contact for help in the art world. Because as you said, it's like the Wild West. It's hard to know who to talk to sometimes. I think that's, that's yeah. very true. I think one of the things I often hear is um, the children of artists who have a list from the artist, from the parent, yeah. um, saying, please destroy the following works. I don't want anyone to ever see these works. It's really hard for the son or the daughter or the, the, the children to actually do that because even though the artist doesn't value that work, perhaps it's a very early work and it's awkward and they they don't want people to see where they started from. That has art historical meaning and importance, but you've been given this clear instruction. There are a lot of complicated decisions that are partly involved with the commerce and the gallery and moving from primary to secondary. Some of these are artistic and and family um, decisions. And of course, one thing we haven't talked about so much in this this sort of situation between um, probate and and, and the sort of the secondary side of an artist's life um, is a museum, and, and because they are somewhere, uh, 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 some some form of academic or aesthetic home for a particular artist is a very important part of giving an artist a legacy outside of a commercial process. And actually, it will inform the commercial process. So, building a relationship with a, a museum or, or building your own museum, which I, I know a number of artists are doing, yes. um, that's something which is an, an interesting to do while you're alive, actually, to, to control it. Well, first, thank you so much to both Charles and Joe for helping enhance my feeble knowledge on the topic. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. If you want to embark upon your own journey into the art world with Charles's helping hand, details of how to get in touch are in the show notes for the episode, where you'll also find a link to Joe's epic piece on becoming a buyer in the art world. Thank you very much for listening and keep an eye out for the next episode of More Than Law coming to a podcast feed near you soon. Forster's More Than Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The More Than Law podcast and any copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent.